Good morning, church family. Join us as we read antiphonally Psalm 29. I'll read the part of the leader. Barb will lead you in your part. Ascribe to the Lord, you heavenly beings. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders. The Lord thunders over the mighty waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is majestic. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. The Lord breaks in pieces the cedars in Lebanon. He makes Lebanon leap like a calf, Syrian like a young wild ox. The voice of the Lord strikes with flashes of lightning. The voice of the Lord shakes the desert. The Lord shakes the desert of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord twists the oaks and strips the forest bare. And in his temple all cry, glory. The The Lord Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The Lord is enthroned as king forever. The Lord gives strength to his people. The Lord blesses his people with peace. Would you bow your heads with us in prayer? Heavenly Father, creator of all things, master of all time and space, all-knowing and ever-loving God, you are the God of justice and the God of wisdom. You are the God of mercy and the God of redemption. You are the God who speaks. Your voice is over the waters. Your voice breaks the cedars. Your voice strikes with flashes of lightning. Your voice shakes the desert. Your voice is alive and active, penetrating, judging and dividing even to our inmost parts. We praise your holy name. You are worthy of our praise. We praise you and we glorify you today in this place. You are worthy of our praise. You were before all things and you created all things. In you, all things are held together. There is no corner of creation that you will fail to redeem. You speak and we are formed. You speak and we are pierced. You speak and we are revived. We are refreshed. We are redeemed. Speak to us today, Lord. Form us anew. Penetrate our hearts and our souls with new insight and understanding. Through your penetrating, piercing word, revive and refresh and redeem us. Lord, natural disaster, death, and destruction are again at our doorstep. We grieve for those who have suffered loss, and we pray for all who are hurting. Some here today are in pain or enduring difficulties of a different sort. Lord, we ask that you bring these precious ones comfort and a knowledge of your real, steadfast presence with them. We also remember our students, our teachers, and others who are starting school. We pray for smooth transitions into new schedules and routines. Bring each one a sense of peace and purpose. We ask, Lord, for a year of learning that brings you glory. Lord, we humbly ask today that when you speak to us, when you knock on the door of our heart, when your word penetrates into our very soul, 
May we never keep you standing outside, but may we invite you in with joy and thanksgiving. We welcome you, Heavenly Father. We welcome you, precious Jesus. We welcome you, Holy Spirit. Inhabit this place here with us. Inhabit our hearts, our minds, our souls. Inhabit this time and draw us together and to yourself. In this place, at this time, precious Savior, speak to us through your word and bring us to a new understanding of what it means for us to follow you, our tender shepherd. We love you, Lord, and it is to you and in the mighty name of Jesus that we pray. Amen and amen. Now listen as Barb reads today's scripture in preparation for Bernard's message. Today's scripture reading is from Psalm 139. You have searched me, Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you, Lord, know it completely. You hem me in behind and before, and you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? You created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. How precious to me are your thoughts, God. How vast is the sum of them. Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. At this time, you youth are free to leave and go to your classes, head on out. And while they're doing so, scooch in a little bit so the folks at the back can have a seat. And Bernard, why don't you come on up and teach us? Thank you. Thank you, Dave and Barb, and uh, thank you again for another lovely prayer, leading us in prayer this morning. And good morning, all, and uh, good morning to those of you who are online joining our live stream. On August 1st, uh, Donald Trump was indicted for the third time, as announced by Special Counsel Jack Smith. And I say this, uh, not to evoke screams there, uh, not to set up a political discussion or anything like that, but because in all the surrounding discussion of this, there was a single word that stood out to me that just caught my attention. Uh, it's a common word, but it was being used in a way uh, an unusual, what to me seemed an unusual way. And it was the word discovery. Now as a lover of geography, uh, discovery to me means the explorers who sailed the ocean blue and discovered new lands and uh, discovered the sources of rivers and so on. Uh, you can think of discovery as uh, what scientists are doing in their labs. But here was discovery being used in a legal sense. 
And um, so I've had a little bit of education on what legal discovery is. So Jack Smith's team uh, built their case through discovery as they attempted to uncover the facts and learn the truth. And when they felt that they had a sufficient case, they convened a grand jury with whom they shared their discovery. And this grand jury concluded that there was a case for indictment, and it was this decision that was unsealed by the special counsel. And now the prosecution will discover the discovery to the defense, to Trump's lawyers. And Trump himself has just been sternly warned not to share any sensitive elements of this discovery uh, with his supporters, his followers, as he is wont to do, because this discovery is privileged information. And his lawyers have complained that Smith's discovery process was too long and that they, the defense, now have insufficient time for their own discovery and preparation before a trial next year. So there has been much talk about this idea of discovery, about legal discovery. And discovery is about getting at the facts, which may be well hidden. Now, with this word discovery rolling around in my brain for these last 10 days, while pondering today's text, a prayer popped into my mind last Tuesday. And it's the Collect for Purity from the Service of Holy Communion in the Book of Common Prayer. And it begins this way. Almighty God, unto whom all hearts be open, all desires known, and from whom no secret is hid. Now I've heard this prayer many, many times. I heard it a lot growing up, which is why it was locked away in my brain available, as it were, for random access. Uh, this is the value of liturgy. Uh, repetition leads to memory. It was repetition that locked it into my brain. Unto whom all hearts be open. No discovery is necessary for God. Our hearts lie open to him. No secrets are hidden from him. No subpoena is required. No, no search warrant is needed. God has complete access to us, to our thoughts, to our mind, to our hearts. Well, this ancient prayer quickly led my thoughts to Psalm 139, which I then decided to use as our scripture reading for today, in which we've just heard Barb read. And this Psalm of David begins, you have searched me, Lord, and you know me. God has discovered us in that legal sense. We are an open book before him. Now, the fact that God knows us entirely may be a terrifying thought or a comforting thought. So which side are you on? Are you terrified or are you comforted by God's all-seeing knowledge? It's clear that David found this to be a comforting thing because at the end of the psalm, he invited God to continue his discovery. Verse 23, search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. So he was not afraid of God's discovery. Now would we be so bold and confident as to ask God to search us and know our heart? What is in our hearts? Are they inclined after God? Would he find us to be wholehearted and faithful? Well, faithfulness is the major theme of Hebrews chapters three and four which I've devoted the last three sermons to, and today we'll finish up uh, this little section on faithfulness. 
In chapter three, verses one through six, both Moses and Jesus have been described as faithful. Moses is the great exemplar of faithfulness in the Old Testament, even amidst the faithlessness of all of the Israelites. But Jesus, in his faithfulness, is even greater than Moses. This is then followed by a long section, chapter three, verse seven through 4.11, about entrance into God's rest that we've looked at the last two Sundays. It contrasts two groups of people. The first group in chapter three are those whom God brought out of Egypt under the faithful leadership of Moses. But they failed to enter the land because of their unbelief. They were unfaithful. And this unfaithfulness led to disobedience, a deliberate rejection of God's word, a refusal of his good news. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. But they did not heed his voice. They did harden their hearts. And this refusal to hear took the reform of rebellion and sin. And as a result, that generation perished in the wilderness. The second group in chapter four are the dear brothers and sisters to whom Hebrews is addressed. They are different. They have heard the good news proclaimed to them and they have believed. They are in the process of entering God's rest. They are being faithful. But there is a danger that they will stop listening, that they will follow the example of the wilderness generation and so will fail to enter God's rest. There is the danger that they will turn unfaithful. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Don't be unfaithful. Hence, the preacher issues various warnings throughout the book. And such warnings bracket the text we looked at last week. So in chapter four, verse one, at the beginning, let us fear lest some of you be found to have fallen short of entering into his rest. And at chapter 11, at verse 11, at the end of the text, let us strive to enter that rest, lest anyone perish by following their example of disobedience. And to close out this section on faithfulness, chapters three and four, the preacher now provides a reason for his concern. So our text today is Hebrews chapter four, verses 12 and 13, just two verses. Uh, It's on the little worship sheet uh, that I hope you picked up. Uh, For those of you online, you can access it as the worship guide on our website. So here is the word of the Lord, Hebrews chapter four, verses 12 and 13. I'll read from the NIV. For the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Now, NIV has split this up into uh, four sentences. I think it's a single sentence in the original. The word of God is alive and active. This verse is one of the most familiar verses in all of the book of Hebrews. Now we consider the book of Hebrews to be part of God's word, the Bible, the scriptures. And in turn, this book of Hebrews is full, full of God's word. And it opens, the book of Hebrews opens with this bold declaration of his word. Chapter one, verse one. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. 
ask. Here we have two great acts of God speaking. God's word over a long period of time in the past through the prophets to ancient Israel and God's word to us in a singular instance in, by, and as his son. And we are included in the us to whom this second word is addressed. And the preacher presents five attributes of God's word and they are prefaced with the word for, because. They provide the reason for the warning in verse 11, the reason for why we should strive to be faithful so that we finish our spiritual journey and enter God's rest. The first attribute of God's word is that it is alive. Several times in the book, God is described as the living God. And God's word is living because God himself is living. So it is the living word of the living God. And the first part of God's word, what he spoke in the past, is Israel's scriptures, our Old Testament. And that word, though spoken long ago and written down, continues to be living. It is very alive to the preacher because he constantly quotes it. There are nearly 40 direct quotations from the Old Testament in the book of Hebrews and many, many more allusions. And among all New Testament books, Hebrews is rivaled only by revelation in the depth of Old Testament influence. And whenever the preacher quotes the Old Testament, he doesn't begin as it is written, as most other books of the New Testament do. Instead, it's, he introduces a quotation with it says in the present tense. So God's word from long ago continues to speak. It continues to live. In the immediate context of our two verses, the word that continues to speak is this. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. So this quotation from Psalm 95 has repeated three times in chapters three and four. And I've deliberately quoted it now three times in this sermon. So that word spoke in the days of David, author of the Psalm. Implicitly, it spoke in the days of Moses, who urged the second generation to hear and heed God's word, unlike their parents, who heard but did not listen. It spoke in the days of the preacher to the Hebrews, as he exhorted his brothers and sisters to hear God's word. They had heard the good news proclaimed to them and believed. He exhorts them to continue to be faithful. And it still speaks today to us. We have heard the good news the good news of Jesus, and we have believed. And we too need to keep hearing. We need to persevere in our faithfulness until we reach the end of our earthly pilgrimage and enter fully into God's rest. The living God's word is a living word. It speaks today. Today is the day for hearing his voice. Secondly, God's word is active. It is energetic in being both active and powerful, and therefore it is effective. It accomplishes its intent. It brings things to happen. As the Lord says in Isaiah, in another familiar verse, so is my word that goes out from my mouth. It will not return to me empty, but will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. And we see this most clearly in the creation of the world. God created the cosmos through his word, through his 10 words in Genesis 1. He spoke and it was. God said, let there be light, and there was light. 
And then his evaluation that the light was good indicates that the light was exactly what he intended by his word. Into what started as non-ordered nothingness, he spoke an ordered cosmos. And it was all very good. It was exactly what he intended by his 10 words. His word was effective. And this is the voice of the Lord that we heard seven times in our scripture reading, Psalm 29. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is majestic. And in response, all God's people in the temple cry out, glory. So, God's word is living. God's word is energetic or effective, powerful. And the remaining three attributes describe with increasing specificity how God's word is energetic, how it is both active and powerful, how it is effective. And the focus is not on God's word in creation, but on God's word inside us, his word inside people. The third attribute of God's word is that it is sharper than any double-edged sword. This is a familiar biblical metaphor for most of us, I'm sure, that uh, God's word is a sword. And I wonder if any of you, uh, as kids, or maybe your kids nowadays, uh, have participated in a sword drill. Anyone know a sword drill? Yes, I see some hands, right? So, competition to see how quickly you can find a verse in the Bible. Right, you start with a closed Bible and somebody calls out a verse and you have to find it, which means you need to know the order of the books of the Bible. And first person to stand up and read out that verse gets a point. And so it continues. Well, why do we call it a sword drill? Because God's word is a sword. The Bible is a sword. And part of our spiritual armor listed in Ephesians chapter six is the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. And Jesus used God's word as a powerful weapon, as a weapon against Satan in the temptation. And in each of the three temptations, he defeated Satan by correctly quoting God's word from Deuteronomy. He passed God's test by remaining faithful to God's word. Five times in Revelation, reference is made to the sharp and or double-edged sword coming from the mouth of Jesus, indicating the power of his word. Indeed, the rider on the white horse, from whose mouth comes this double-edged sword, is himself called the Word of God. And several times, Revelation mentions the Word of God and the testimony of Jesus as parallel terms. The testimony of Jesus, what he says about God, and also the words that come out of his mouth. But here in Hebrews 4, verse 12, the sharp sword of God's word is not part of our armor against Satan, nor is it part of Jesus' weaponry. It is turned on us. It is God's instrument to probe and examine us. Just as when we go for a physical, the doctor will use various instruments to probe our body to determine our physical health. So it is with God and his word. And God's probe his instrument, his word, is sharp, very sharp. This leads to the fourth characteristic of his word. Because God's word is so sharp, it is penetrating or piercing. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. Now, this is not a statement about the composition of a human being, whether a human is bipartite, a body and a soul, whether a human being is tripartite, a body, a soul, and a spirit. 
think uh, biblically a living human is a psychosomatic unity, a body that is alive. And this unity between our physical body and our non-physical self is why people can suffer psychosomatic disorders and diseases. Our self is far more than just the physical material of our body. Strict materialism does not explain the human being. There's another part of us. But Hebrews makes no real distinction between soul and spirit. They're intangible anyway. So how can you divide them with a sword? And then joints are part of the physical body, but they're hidden under skin and flesh. Marrow is hidden even deeper, deep inside bones and usually completely invisible. So the preacher's point here is more that God's word is so penetrating that it can divide the indivisible. It can penetrate the impenetrable. It can access the inaccessible. It can see into the most unseen places and probe into the deepest parts. It is the most effective instrument of discovery. Finally and fifthly, because God's word is so sharp that it can divide the indivisible, it can access the innermost thoughts. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Now we might think that the thoughts and deliberations of our heart are secret, known only to ourselves. But God's word penetrates even this far. Our innermost thoughts and inclinations are known to him. And the result of this probing examination by God's living energetic word is given in verse 13. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. So here the same point is stated twice in poetic parallelism. First, negatively, no creature is unseen before God, and then positively, all things are naked and exposed to his eyes. As the prayer says, unto whom all hearts be open, all desires known, and from whom no secrets are hid. And when God turns his gaze upon us, we have nowhere to hide. When Adam and Eve heard the sound of the Lord God in the garden, they hid from him among the trees, having previously made skimpy fig coverings to hide them, their nakedness. But neither attempt was effective. There was nowhere to hide. The Lord found them out. And he summoned them to give an account. And they had to answer for what he had done, they had done with his word. Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? It was a simple word, this command to not eat of the one tree. And God had heavily weighted the situation in favor of keeping this one command, this one word, by providing an abundance of other trees with all of their fruit, all for eating. But that required faith in God's provision, faith in his word. And he was testing their faithfulness, but had heavily stacked the deck in favor of that faithfulness. And the problem came when they saw the fruit of the one tree. They forgot what God had said. They stopped listening to his voice. And the result was disobedience against God's word. Now we too must give God an account. The word translated account at the end of verse 13 is the same as word at the beginning of verse 12. 
So God's word is living, active, very sharp, penetrating and discriminating so that we are exposed before him and thus exposed, we owe him a word. What word can we say in reply when under examination by his word? What response dare we offer? Do we have any better response than Adam and Eve? These two verses form a single sentence which closes out the section on faithfulness. Moses and Jesus were both faithful. The wilderness generation, though led by faithful Moses, was itself not faithful, but disobedient. The preachers, brothers and sisters to whom he delivers this sermon are proving faithful so far, but he is well aware of the need for vigilance, hence the warnings throughout. And how about us? reading this now, will we be found faithful? Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion during the time of testing in the wilderness where your ancestors tested and tried me. Psalm 95, more fuller section of it. God tested Adam and Eve in the garden. He tested his people whom he brought out of Egypt. He tested them in order to know what was in their hearts. Now he already knew what was in their hearts. He tested them so that they might see what was in their hearts. But the wilderness generation turned the tables on God. They tested him and they tried him by refusing to trust him, refusing to trust his word and his provision. They refused to believe his promise that he would bring them into the land of promise. God tested Jesus in the wilderness immediately after his baptism that Jesus was faithful where Adam and Israel had been unfaithful. So now the word of God that we need to keep hearing is not just what he spoke in the past through the prophets, but what he has spoken in these last days to us in, by, and as the son, the son who has been faithful. As I said a few weeks ago, testing and tempting are the opposite sides of the same coin. And the object of the test and the temptation is the same. For Adam and Eve in the garden, it was the fruit of that one tree. For Israel in the wilderness, it was God's promise. And God wants us to pass the test by resisting the temptation. Satan wants us to succumb to the temptation, thereby failing the test. We pray, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. The evil one is up to no good. But we also seek to remain faithful through the test. The temptation which Satan intends for evil is the test which God intends for good. As James writes, the testing of our faith produces perseverance. Almighty God, unto whom all hearts be open, all desires known, and from whom no secrets are hid. We acknowledge that we are known to God. Like David, we say, you have searched me, Lord, and you know me. No creature is unseen before God. All are naked and exposed to his eyes. And having acknowledged this, made this confession, what then? Where do we go with this admission? Well, the prayer continues with a petition. Cleanse the thoughts of our hearts by the inspiration of thy Holy Spirit. So in this collect for purity, we pray for purity. 
and this request leads to an aspiration that we may perfectly love thee and worthily magnify thy holy name. And it closes with the basis for our plea through Christ our Lord. Amen. That we may perfectly love thee. God knows the hearts that love him, the hearts that long to love him more, weak though their love might be. He knows that between, beneath the outward show of some is a heart that really does not deeply love him. On the other hand, beneath the trials and struggles of this life, he knows the heart that nevertheless does beat for him in love, however weakly that may be. So is it our great desire to love God and to love God more? Or is our primary desire that God will make life easy for us, that he will make our problems go away, that we will not be tested? Uh, last week I was asked about the prayer of Jabez. Um, oh, that you would bless me and keep me from harm so that I will be free from pain. This little prayer that's hidden uh, deep in the genealogies of First Chronicles, largely unexplored territory. But this prayer was all of a sudden very popular 15 or 20 years ago when Bruce Wilkinson wrote a book of the same name, The Prayer of Jabez. Uh, and this struck a chord back then, um, as indicated by the fact that the book became a bestseller. It struck a chord, I think, because this is really what many people want from God, to be free from pain. Keep me from harm so I'll be free from pain. But the testimony of many is that God often uses pain to further our spiritual growth and to deepen our love for him. He can use pain to wean us off of our other loves so that we remain faithful to him, so that we deepen in our love. And when we love God, being naked and exposed before him is not intimidating. We can confess, Almighty God, unto whom all hearts be open, all, desi all desires known, and before whom all secrets, um, no secrets are hid. And then we can state our aspiration to love him more, that we may perfectly love thee. Now here at uh, PBCC, we have many opportunities to gather together in community around God's word, this word that is living and powerful, that is sharp, that is penetrating, that is discerning. We've heard about some of them this morning, the women's Bible studies, the men's Bible studies. The next two Sundays will be Connection Sundays. Uh, next week will be connection, learning about connections here within the church family. Uh, and many of those include gathering around the scriptures. And there's a great thing to gather around the scriptures and allow the scriptures to speak to us. To not try and bring our own agenda to the scriptures and get helpful hints for living life, but to allow the scriptures to work on us as God's instrument, probing deeply into us. And as they probe deeply into us and expose us in our thoughts, for ultimately to be led into a deepening love for God so that ultimately we might love him perfectly. And the scriptures that then we gather around now include our New Testament, uh, the Gospels and the book of Acts, giving the story of Jesus and the story of the early church, and then the epistles, the apostolic teaching about the significance of Jesus, about this greater word that God has spoken to us 
in his son. Now, after closing out the section on faithfulness, the preacher will next turn to the central theme of his sermon, the ministry of Jesus Christ, our great high priest. Uh, we'll be in that for a long time. It goes from uh, towards the end of chapter four uh, all the way to the end of chapter 10. And he begins with a word of great comfort for all who love him. It's a word of invitation beyond this sobering word about God's all-penetrating gaze. This word of comfort will be what I'll preach on next week. That's just three verses, but I want to read it again today just so it's on your mind and because it is, in a sense, an answer, this word of comfort to uh, the probing of God's word. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are. Yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. After all discovery has been made about us, we have an advocate and a friend in God's presence on our behalf. Jesus was tempted in every way, just as we are, but he did not sin. He passed the test. He remained faithful to God's word, using God's word as that powerful weapon to repel Satan. What Satan intended for evil, God intended for good. Satan tempted Jesus, tempting to get him to fail. God tested Jesus, intending for him to pass. God's word, misused by Satan, but correctly used by Jesus, exposed what was in Jesus' heart. What was there? Love and faithfulness. He remained faithful and obedient to the one who had just before, in the baptism, beamed with pleasure on him, saying, you are my son whom I love, with you I am well pleased. And he returned that love in faithful obedience to the Father's will. Almighty God, unto whom all hearts be open, all desires known, can we survive the scrutiny of God's all-penetrating word and his all-seeing gaze? Well, C.S. Lewis writes this in The Weight of Glory. How God thinks of us is not only more important than how we think of God, but infinitely more important. It is written that we shall stand before him, shall appear, shall be inspected. And the promise of glory is the promise, almost incredible and only possible by the work of Christ, that some of us, that any of us who really chooses, shall actually survive that examination, shall find approval, shall please God. To please God, to be a real ingredient in the divine happiness, to be loved by God, not merely pitied, but delighted in as an artist delights in his work or a father and a son, it seems impossible. A weight or burden of glory which our thoughts can scarcely sustain, but so it is. So in the end, God will look on us in delight. But how does he look on us now? Now there's a widespread view that because we're not very lovely due to our sin, God actually doesn't look on us prefers not to see us, that instead he sees Christ. Now this is a very well-meaning thought, but I'm not sure that it is true. Certainly not with the book of Hebrews. 
Because Jesus is not ashamed to call us his brothers and sisters. He is not ashamed to represent us, to be in God's presence on our behalf. He is not ashamed to say his father, they're my people, they're my younger siblings. Yes, our hearts are open unto God and all desires known, but this means that God sees the heart that desires him. He hears the prayer of the one who wants to love him more. He looks on us in love and delight. We have heard the good news that God has spoken to us in these last days by, in, and as his son. We have believed, we have begun to follow Jesus, the one who has gone before us as our pioneer and forerunner. He has opened the way into God's presence. He is there as our high priest, interceding for us so that we can receive mercy and find grace to continue our journey. And at the end, God will say in these words from Revelation 21, it is done, those who are victorious will inherit all this, I will be their God and they will be my children we will be a real ingredient in his divine happiness. I'll invite the band to come up. So a few weeks ago, I ended with this passage from Pilgrim's Progress. Uh, it's of uh, the arrival of Christian and other pilgrims at the celestial city, the end of their journey, the end of their pilgrimage. And I want to end with it again today. Now I saw in my dream that these pilgrims went in at the gate and as they entered, they were transfigured. And they had raiment put on that shone like gold. Then I heard in my dream that all the bells in the city rang again for joy, and it was said within, enter ye into the joy of the Lord. Amen. Now I close with another prayer, another collect from the prayer book. Lord God, the light of the minds that know you, the life of the souls that love you, and the strength of the hearts that serve you. Help us so to know you that we may truly love you, and so to love you that we may fully serve you, whom to serve is perfect freedom through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship, the participation and lives of the Holy Spirit be with us all now and evermore. Amen. Go in peace.